Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 4, Chapter 1 of The Black Arrow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson Book 4, entitled The Disguise Chapter 1 The Den The place where Dick had struck the line of a high road was not far from Holywood, and within nine or ten miles of shore beyond the till, and here, after making sure that they were pursued no longer, the two bodies separated. Lord Foxham's followers departed, carrying their wounded master towards the comfort and security of the great abbey. And Dick, as he saw them wind away and disappear in the thick curtain of the falling snow, was left alone with near upon a dozen outlaws, the last remainder of his troop of volunteers. Some were wounded, one and all were furious at their ill success and long exposure and though they were now too cold and hungry to do more, they grumbled and cast sullen looks upon their leaders. Dick emptied his purse among them, leaving himself nothing, thanked them for the courage they had displayed, though he could have found it more readily in his heart to rate them for poltroonery, and having thus somewhat softened the effect of his prolonged misfortune, dispatched them to find their way, either severally or in pairs, to Shoreby and the Goat and Bagpipes. For his own part, influenced by what he had seen on board of the Good Hope, he chose Lawless to be his companion on the walk. The snow was falling, without pause or variation, in one even, blinding cloud. The wind had been strangled, now blew no longer, and the whole world was blotted out and sheeted down below that silent inundation. There was great danger of wandering by the way and perishing in drifts and Lawless, keeping half a step in front of his companion, and holding his head forward like a hunting-dog upon the scent, inquired his way of every tree, and studied out their path as though he were conning a ship among dangers. About a mile into the forest they came to a place where several ways met, under a grove of lofty and contorted oaks. Even in the narrow horizon of the falling snow it was a spot that could not fail to be recognized, and Lawless evidently recognized it with particular delight. "'Now, Master Richard,' said he, "'and ye are not too proud to be the guest of a man who is neither a gentleman by birth, nor so much as a good Christian. I can offer you a cup of wine, and a good fire to melt the marrow in your frozen bones.' "'Lead on, Will,' answered Dick. "'A cup of wine and a good fire. Nay, I would go a far way round to see them.' Lawless turned aside under the bare branches of the grove, and, walking resolutely forward for some time, came to a steepish hollow or den that had now drifted a quarter full of snow. On the verge a great beech-tree hung, precariously rooted, and here the old outlaw, 
pulling aside some bushy underwood, bodily disappeared into the earth. The beach had, in some violent gale, been half uprooted, and had torn up a considerable stretch of turf, and it was under this that old Lawless had dug out his forest hiding-place. The roots served him for rafters, the turf was his thatch, for walls and floor he had his mother the earth. Rude as it was, the hearth in one corner, blackened by fire, and the presence in another of a large oaken chest well fortified with iron, showed it at one glance to be the den of a man, and not the burrow of a digging beast. Though the snow had drifted at the mouth, and sifted in upon the floor of this earth cavern, yet was the air much warmer than without, and when Lawless had struck a spark, and the dry firs bushes had begun to blaze and crackle on the hearth, the place assumed, even to the eye, an air of comfort and of home. With a sigh of great contentment, Lawless spread his broad hands before the fire, and seemed to breathe the smoke. "'Here, then,' he said, "'is this old Lawless's rabbit-hole. Praise heaven there come no terrier. Far I have rolled hither and thither, and here and about, since that I was fourteen years of mine age, and first ran away from mine abbey, with a sacred gold chain and a mass-book that I sold for four marks. I have been in England and France and Burgundy, and in Spain, too, on a pilgrimage for my poor soul, and upon the sea, which is no man's country. But here is my place, Master Shelton. This is my native land, this burrow in the earth. Come rain or wind, and whether it's April, and the birds all sing, and the blossoms fall about my bed, or whether it's winter, and I sit alone with my good gossip the fire, and robin redbreast twitters in the woods, here is my church and market, and my wife and child. It's here I come back to, and it's here, so please the saints, that I would like to die. "'Tis a warm corner, to be sure,' replied Dick, "'and a pleasant, and a well-hid. "'It had need to be,' returned Lawless, "'for an they found it, Master Shelton, it would break my heart. "'But here,' he added, burrowing with his stout fingers in the sandy floor, "'here is my wine-cellar, and ye shall have a flask of excellent strong stingo.' Sure enough, after but a little digging, he produced a large leathern bottle of about a gallon, nearly three parts full of a very heady and sweet wine, and when they had drunk to each other comradely, and the fire had been replenished and blazed up again, the pair lay at full length, thawing and steaming, and divinely warm. "'Master Shelton,' observed the outlaw, "'ye have had two mischances this last while.' "'and ye are like to lose the maid. "'Do I take it aright?' "'Aright,' returned Dick, nodding his head. "'Well, now,' returned Lawless, "'here an old fool that hath been nigh-hand everything, "'and seen nigh-hand all. "'Ye go too much on other people's errands, Master Dick. "'Ye go on Ellis's, "'but he desireth rather the death of Sir Daniel. "'Ye go on Lord Foxham's. "'Well, the saints preserve him.' Doubtless he meaneth well. But go ye upon your own, good Dick. Come right to the maid's side. Court her, lest that she forget you. Be ready, and when the chance shall come, off with her at the saddle-bow. Ay, but lawless, 
"'Beyond doubt she is now in Sir Daniel's own mansion,' answered Dick. "'Thither, then, go we,' replied the outlaw. Dick stared at him. "'Nay, I mean it,' nodded Lawless. "'And if ye are so little faith, and stumble at a word, see here!' And the outlaw, taking a key from about his neck, opened the oak chest, and digging and groping deep among its contents, produced first a friar's robe, and next a girdle of rope, and then a huge rosary of wood, heavy enough to be counted as a weapon. "'Here,' he said, "'is for you. On with them!' And then, when Dick had clothed himself in this clerical disguise, Lawless produced some colours and a pencil, and proceeded, with the greatest cunning, to disguise his face. The eyebrows he thickened and produced— to the moustache, which was yet hardly visible, he rendered a like service, while, by a few lines around the eye, he changed the expression and increased the apparent age of this young monk. "'Now,' he resumed, "'when I have done the like, we shall make as bonny a pair of friars as the eye could wish. Boldly to Sir Daniel's we shall go, and there be hospitably welcome for the love of Mother Church.' "'And how, dear Lawless,' cried the lad, "'shall I repay you?' "'Tut, brother,' replied the outlaw, "'I do naught but for my pleasure. Mind not for me. I am one by the mass that mindeth for himself. When that I lack, I have a long tongue and a voice like the monastery bell. I do ask, my son, and where asking faileth, I do most usually take.' The old rogue made a humorous grimace, and although Dick was displeased to lie under so great favours to so equivocal a personage, he was yet unable to restrain his mirth. With that, Lawless returned to the big chest, and was soon similarly disguised, but below his gown Dick wondered to observe him conceal a sheaf of black arrows. "'Wherefore do ye that?' asked the lad. "'Wherefore arrows, when you take no bow?' "'Nay,' replied Lawless, lightly, "'tis like there will be heads broke, not to say backs, ere you and I win sound from where we're going to. And if any fall, I would our fellowship should come by the credit on it. A black arrow, Master Dick, is the seal of our abbey. It showeth you who writ the bill.' "'An ye prepare so carefully,' said Dick, "'I have here some papers that, for mine own sake, and the interest of those that trusted me were better left behind than found upon my body. Where shall I conceal them, Will? Nay, replied Lawless, I will go forth into the wood and whistle me three verses of a song. Meanwhile, do you bury them where you please, and smooth the sand upon the place. Never, cried Richard. I trust you, man. I were base indeed if I not trusted you. Brother! "'Ye are but a child,' replied the old outlaw, pausing and turning his face upon Dick from the threshold of the den. "'I am a kind old Christian, and no traitor to men's blood, and no sparer of mine own in a friend's jeopardy. But, fool, child, I'm a thief by trade and birth and habit. If my bottle were empty and my mouth dry, I would rob you, dear child, as sure as I love—' honour and admire your parts and person could it be clearer spoken no 
and he stumped forth through the bushes with a snap of his big fingers. Dick, thus left alone, after a wondering thought upon the inconsistencies of his companion's character, hastily produced, reviewed, and buried his papers. One only he reserved to carry along with him, since it in no wise compromised his friends, and yet might serve him, in a pinch, against Sir Daniel. That was the knight's own letter to Lord Wensleydale, sent by Throgmorton, on the morrow of the defeat at Risingham, and found next day by Dick upon the body of the messenger. Then, treading down the embers of the fire, Dick left the den, and rejoined the old outlaw, who stood awaiting him under the leafless oaks, and was already beginning to be powdered by the falling snow. Each looked upon the other, and each laughed, so thorough and so droll was the disguise. "'Yet I would it were but summer and a clear day,' grumbled the outlaw, "'that I might see myself in the mirror of a pool. There be many of Sir Daniel's men that know me, and if we fell to be recognised, there might be two words for you, brother, but as for me, in a paternoster while, I should be kicking in a rope's end.' Thus they set forth together along the road to Shoreby, which, in this part of its course, kept near along the margin of the forest, coming forth from time to time in the open country, and passing beside poor folks' houses and small farms. Presently, at sight of one of these, Lawless pulled up. "'Brother Martin,' he said, in a voice capitally disguised and suited to his monkish robe, let us enter and seek alms from these poor sinners pax fobiscum ay he added in his own voice tis as i feared i have somewhat lost the wine of it and by your leave good master shelton you must suffer me to practise in these country places before that i risk my fat neck by entering sir daniel's but look ye a little what an excellent thing it is to be a jack of all trades and I had not been a shipman, ye had infallibly gone down in the good hope. And I had not been a thief, I could not have painted me your face. And but that I had been a grey friar, and sung loud in the choir, and ate hearty at the board, I could not have carried this disguise. But the very dogs would have spied us out and barked at us for shams. He was by this time close to the window of the farm, and he rose on his tiptoes and peeped in. "'Nay,' he cried, "'better and better. We shall here try our false faces with a vengeance, and have a merry jest on Brother Capper to boot.' And so saying, he opened the door and led the way into the house. Three of their own company sat at the table, greedily eating. Their daggers stuck beside them in the board, and the black and menacing looks which they continued to shower upon the people of the house— proved that they owed their entertainment rather to force than favour. On the two monks, who now, with a sort of humble dignity, entered the kitchen of the farm, they seemed to turn with a particular resentment, and one, it was John Capper in person, who seemed to play the leading part, instantly and rudely ordered them away. "'We want no beggars here!' he cried. But another, although he was as far from recognizing Dick and Lawless, inclined to more moderate counsels. "'Not so,' he cried. "'We be strong men, and take. These be weak, and crave. But in the latter end these shall be uppermost, and we below.' 
mind him not my father but come drink of my cup and give me a benediction ye are a man of a light mind carnal and accursed said the monk now may the saints forbid that ever i should drink with such companions but here for the pity i bear to sinners here i do leave you a blessed relic the which for your soul's interest i bid you kiss and cherish so far lawless thundered upon them like a preaching friar but with these words he drew from under his robe a black arrow tossed it on the board in front of the three startled outlaws turned in the same instant and taking dick along with him was out of the room and out of sight among the falling snow before they had time to utter a word or move a finger so he said we have proved our false faces master shelton i will now adventure my poor carcass where you please good returned richard it irks me to be doing set we on for shoreby end of chapter book 4 chapter 2 of the black arrow this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org this recording is by mark smith of simpsonville south carolina the black arrow by robert louis stevenson book 4 chapter 2 in my enemy's house Sir Daniel's residence in Shoreby was a tall, commodious, plastered mansion, framed in carven oak, and covered by a low-pitched roof of thatch. To the back there stretched a garden full of fruit-trees, alleys, and thick arbours, and overlooked from the far end by the tower of the abbey church. The house might contain, upon a pinch, the retinue of a greater person than Sir Daniel, but even now it was filled with hubbub. The court rang with arms and horseshoe-iron. The kitchens roared with cookery like a bees-hive. Minstrels and the players of instruments and the cries of tumblers sounded from the hall. Sir Daniel, in his profusion, in the gaiety and gallantry of his establishment, rivalled with Lord Shoreby and eclipsed Lord Risingham. All guests were made welcome. Minstrels, tumblers, players of chess, the sellers of relics, medicines, perfumes, and enchantments, and along with these every sort of priest, friar, or pilgrim, were made welcome to the lower table, and slept together in the ample lofts, or on the bare boards of the long dining-hall. On the afternoon following the wreck of the Good Hope, the buttery, the kitchens, the stables, the covered cart-shed that surrounded two sides of the court, were all crowded by idle people, partly belonging to Sir Daniel's establishment, and attired in his livery of murrey and blue, partly nondescript strangers attracted to the town by greed, and received by the night through policy, and because it was the fashion of the time. The snow, which still fell without interruption, the extreme chill of the air, and the approach of night, combined to keep them under shelter. Wine, ale, and money were all plentiful, Many sprawled gambling in the straw of the barn, many were still drunken from the noontide meal. To the eye of a modern it would have looked like the sack of a city, to the eye of a contemporary it was like any other rich and noble household at a festive season. Two monks, 
a young and an old, had arrived late, and were now warming themselves at a bonfire in a corner of the shed. A mixed crowd surrounded them, jugglers, mountebanks, and soldiers, and with these the elder of the two had soon engaged so brisk a conversation, and exchanged so many loud guffaws and country witticisms, that the group momentarily increased in number. The younger companion, in whom the reader has already recognized Dick Shelton, sat from the first somewhat backward, and gradually drew himself away. He listened, indeed, closely, but he opened not his mouth, and by the grave expression of his countenance he made but little account of his companion's pleasantries. At last his eye, which travelled continually to and fro, and kept a guard upon all the entrances of the house, lit upon a little procession entering by the main gate and crossing the court in an oblique direction. Two ladies, muffled in thick furs, led the way, and were followed by a pair of waiting-women and four stout men-at-arms. The next moment they had disappeared within the house, and Dick, slipping through the crowd of loiterers in the shed, was already giving hot pursuit. "'The taller of those twain was Lady Brackley,' he thought, "'and where Lady Brackley is, Joan will not be far.' At the door of the house the four men-at-arms had ceased to follow, and the ladies were now mounting the stairway of polished oak, under no better escort than that of the two waiting-women. Dick followed close behind. It was already the dusk of the day, and in the house the darkness of the night had almost come. On the stair-landings torches flared in iron holders. Down the long tapestried corridors a lamp burned by every door and where the door stood open, Dick could look in upon arras-covered walls and rush-bescattered floors, glowing in the light of the wood-fires. Two floors were passed, and at every landing the younger and shorter of the two ladies had looked back keenly at the monk. He, keeping his eyes lowered, and affecting the demure manners that suited his disguise, had but seen her once, and was unaware that he had attracted her attention and now on the third floor the party separated, the younger lady continuing to ascend alone, the other, followed by the waiting-maids, descending the corridor to the right. Dick mounted with a swift foot, and holding to the corner, thrust forth his head, and followed the three women with his eyes. Without turning or looking behind them, they continued to descend the corridor. "'It is right well,' thought Dick, let me but know my Lady Brackley's chamber, and it will go hard and I find not Dame Hatch upon an errand. And just then a hand was laid upon his shoulder, and with a bound and a choked cry he turned to grapple his assailant. He was somewhat abashed to find, in the person whom he had so roughly seized, the short young lady in the furs. She, on her part, was shocked and terrified beyond expression, and hung trembling in his grasp. "'Madam,' said Dick, releasing her, "'I cry you a thousand pardons, but I have no eyes behind, and by the mass I could not tell you where I made.' The girl continued to look at him, but by this time terror began to be succeeded by surprise, and surprise by suspicion. Dick, who could read these changes on her face, became alarmed for his own safety in that hostile house. "'Fair maid,' he said, affecting easiness, Suffer me to kiss your hand, in token ye forgive my roughness, and I will even go. 
"'Ye are a strange monk, young sir,' returned the young lady, looking him both boldly and shrewdly in the face. "'And now that my first astonishment hath somewhat passed away, I can spy the layman in each word you utter. What do you hear? Why are ye thus sacrilegiously tricked out? Come ye in peace or war? And why spy ye after Lady Brackley like a thief?' "'Madam,' quoth Dick, of one thing I pray you to be very sure, I am no thief, and even if I come here in war, as in some degree I do, I make no war upon fair maids, and thereby entreat them to copy me so far, and to leave me be. For indeed, fair mistress, cry out, if such be your pleasure, cry but once, and say what ye have seen, and the poor gentleman before you is merely a dead man. I cannot think ye would be cruel,' added Dick and taking the girl's hand gently in both of his, he looked at her with courteous admiration. "'Are you then a spy, a Yorkist?' asked the maid. "'Madam,' he replied, "'I am indeed a Yorkist, and in some sort a spy. But that which bringeth me into this house, the same which will win for me the pity and interest of your kind heart, is neither of York nor Lancaster. I will wholly put my life in your discretion.' I am a lover, and my name. But here the young lady clapped her hand suddenly upon Dick's mouth, looked hastily up and down and east and west, and, seeing the coast clear, began to drag the young man with great strength and vehemence upstairs. Hush, she said, and come, shalt talk hereafter. Somewhat bewildered, Dick suffered himself to be pulled upstairs bustled along a corridor, and thrust suddenly into a chamber, lit, like so many of the others, by a blazing log upon the hearth. "'Now,' said the young lady, forcing him down upon a stool, "'sit ye there, and attend my sovereign good pleasure. I have life and death over you, and I will not scruple to abuse my power. Look to yourself. Ye have cruelly mauled my arm. He knew not I was a maid,' quoth he, had he known I was a maid, he would have taken his belt to me, forsooth. And with these words she whipped out of the room, and left Dick gaping with wonder, and not very sure if he was dreaming or awake. "'Taking my belt to her,' he repeated. "'Taking my belt to her?' And the recollection of that evening in the forest flowed back upon his mind, and he once more saw Matcham's wincing body and beseeching eyes. Then he was recalled to the dangers of the present. In the next room he heard a stir, as of a person moving, then followed a sigh, which sounded strangely near, and then the rustle of skirts and tap of feet once more began. As he stood hearkening, he saw the heiress wave along the wall. There was the sound of a door being opened, the hangings divided, and, lamp in hand, Joanna Sedley entered the apartment. She was attired in costly stuffs of deep and warm colours, such as befit the winter and the snow. Upon her head her hair had been gathered together and became her as a crown. And she, who had seemed so little and so awkward in the attire of Matcham, was now tall like a young willow, and swam across the floor as though she scorned the drudgery of walking. Without a start, without a tremor, she raised her lamp and looked at the young monk, "'What make ye here, good brother?' she inquired. "'Ye are doubtless ill-directed. Whom do you require?' 
and she set her lamp upon the bracket. "'Joanna,' said Dick, and then his voice failed him. "'Joanna,' he began again, "'you said you loved me, and the more fool I, but I believed it.' "'Dick!' she cried. "'Dick!' And then, to the wonder of the lad, this beautiful and tall young lady made but one step of it, and threw her arms about his neck, and gave him a hundred kisses all in one. "'Oh, the fool fellow!' she cried. "'Oh, dear Dick! Oh, if you could see yourself! Alack!' she added, pausing. "'I have spoiled you, Dick. I have knocked some of the paint off. But that can be mended. What cannot be mended, Dick, or I much fear it cannot, is my marriage with Lord Shoreby.' "'Is it decided, then?' asked the lad. "'Tomorrow, before noon, Dick, in the Abbey Church,' she answered. "'John Matcham and Joanna Sedley both shall come to a right miserable end. There is no help in tears, or I could weep mine eyes out. I have not spared myself to pray, but heaven frowns on my petition. And, dear Dick, good Dick, but that ye can get me forth of this house before the morning, we must even kiss and say good-bye.' "'Nay,' said Dick, not I. I will never say that word. Tis like despair. But while there's life, Joanna, there is hope. Yet will I hope. Ay, by the mass, and triumph. Look ye now, when you were but a name to me, did I not follow? Did I not rouse good men? Did I not stake my life upon the quarrel? And now that I have seen you for what you are, the fairest maid and stateliest of England— think ye I would turn? If the deep sea were there, I would straight through it. If the way were full of lions, I would scatter them like mice. Ay, she said, dryly, you make a great ado about a sky-blue robe. Nay, Joan, protested Dick, tis not alone the robe. But, lass, you were disguised. Here am I disguised. And, to the proof, do I not cut a figure of fun? I write fool's figure? Hi, <laughs> Dick, and that you do, she answered, smiling. Well, then, he returned, triumphant, so was it with you, poor Matcham, in the forest. In sooth you were a wench to laugh at. But now— So they ran on, holding each other by both hands, exchanging smiles and lovely looks, and melting minutes into seconds, and so they might have continued all night long but presently there was a noise behind them, and they were aware of the short young lady, with her finger on her lips. "'Saints!' she cried. "'But what a noise ye keep! Can ye not speak in compass? And now, Joanna, my fair maid of the woods, what will ye give your gossip for bringing you your sweetheart?' Joanna ran to her by way of answer, and embraced her fierily. "'And you, sir,' added the young lady, "'what do ye give me?' "'Madam,' said Dick, "'I would fain offer to pay you in the same money.' "'Come, then,' said the lady, "'it is permitted you.' And Dick, blushing like a peony, only kissed her hand. "'What ails ye at my face, fair sir?' she inquired, curtsying to the very ground, and then, when Dick had at length and most tepidly embraced her, "'Joanna,' she added, your sweetheart is very backward under your eyes. 
but i warrant you when first we met he was more ready i am all black and blue wench trust me never if i be not black and blue and now she continued have ye said your sayings for i must speedily dismiss the paladin but at this they both cried out that they had said nothing that the knight was still very young and that they would not be separated so early and supper asked the young lady must we not go down to supper nay to be sure cried joan i had forgotten hide me then said dick put me behind the arras shut me in a chest or what you will so that i may be here on your return indeed fair lady he added bear this in mind that we are sore bested and may never look upon each other's face from this night forward till we die at this the young lady melted and when a little after the bell summoned sir daniel's household to the board dick was planted very stiffly against the wall at a place where a division in the tapestry permitted him to breathe the more freely and even to see into the room he had not been long in this position when he was somewhat strangely disturbed the silence and that upper story of the house was only broken by the flickering of the flames and the hissing of a green log in the chimney but presently to dick's strained hearing there came the sound of some one walking with extreme precaution and soon after the door opened and a little black-faced dwarfish fellow in lord chorby's colours pushed first his head and then his crooked body into the chamber his mouth was open as though to hear the better and his eyes which were very bright flitted restlessly and swiftly to and fro he went round and round the room striking here and there upon the hangings but dick by a miracle escaped his notice then he looked below the furniture and examined the lamp and at last with an air of cruel disappointment was preparing to go away as silently as he had come when down he dropped upon his knees picked up something from among the rushes on the floor examined it and with every signal of delight concealed it in the wallet at his belt dick's heart sank for the object in question was a tassel from his own girdle and it was plain to him that this dwarfish spy who took a malign delight in his employment would lose no time in bearing it to his master the baron he was half tempted to throw aside the heiress fall upon the scoundrel and at the risk of his life remove the tell-tale token and while he was still hesitating a new cause of concern was added a voice hoarse and broken by drink began to be audible from the stair and presently after uneven wandering and heavy footsteps sounded without along the passage what make ye here my merry men among the greenwood shaws sang the voice what make ye here hey sots what make ye here it added with a rattle of drunken laughter and then once more breaking into song if ye should drink the cherry wine fat friar john ye friend of mine if i should eat and ye should drink who shall sing the mass do you think lawless alas rolling drunk was wandering the house seeking for a corner wherein to slumber off the effect of his potations dick inwardly raged the spy at first terrified had grown reassured as he found he had to deal with an intoxicated man 
and now, with a movement of cat-like rapidity, slipped from the chamber and was gone from Richard's eyes. What was to be done? If he lost touch of Lawless for the night, he was left impotent whether to plan or carry forth Joanna's rescue. If, on the other hand, he dared to address the drunken outlaw, the spy might be lingering within sight, and the most fatal consequences ensue. It was nevertheless upon this last hazard that Dick decided. Slipping from behind the tapestry, he stood ready in the doorway of the chamber, with a warning hand upraised. Lawless, flushed crimson, with his eyes injected, vacillating on his feet, drew still unsteadily nearer. At last he hazily caught sight of his commander, and, in spite of Dick's imperious signals, hailed him instantly and loudly by his name. Dick leaped upon and shook the drunkard furiously. "'Beast!' he hissed. "'Beast and no man! It is worse than treachery to be so witless! We may all be shent for thy sotting!' But Lawless only laughed and staggered, and tried to clap young Shelton on the back. And just then Dick's quick ear caught a rapid brushing in the arras. He leaped toward the sound, and the next moment a piece of the wall-hanging had been torn down, and Dick and the spy were sprawling together in its folds. Over and over they rolled, grappling for each other's throat, and still baffled by the arras, and still silent in their deadly fury. But Dick was by much the stronger, and soon the spy lay prostrate under his knee, and with a single stroke of the long poniard ceased to breathe. End of chapter Book Four, Chapter Three of The Black Arrow This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson Book Four, Chapter Three, The Dead Spy Throughout this furious and rapid passage, Lawless had looked on helplessly, and even when all was over, and Dick, already re-arisen to his feet, was listening with the most passionate attention to the distant bustle in the lower stories of the house, the old outlaw was still wavering on his legs like a shrub in a breeze of wind, and still stupidly staring on the face of the dead man. "'It is well,' said Dick, at length. They have not heard us, praise the saints! But now what shall I do with this poor spy? At least I will take my tassel from his wallet." So saying, Dick opened the wallet. Within he found a few pieces of money, the tassel, and a letter addressed to Lord Wensleydale, and sealed with my Lord Shoreby's seal. The name awoke Dick's recollection, and he instantly broke the wax and read the contents of the letter. It was short, but— to Dick's delight, it gave evident proof that Lord Shoreby was treacherously corresponding with the House of York. The young fellow usually carried his inkhorn and implements about him, and so now, bending a knee beside the body of the dead spy, he was able to write these words upon a corner of the paper. My Lord of Shoreby, ye that writ the letter, watch ye why your man is dead? But let me read you, marry not. John Amendall. He laid this paper on the breast of the corpse, 
and then Lawless, who had been looking on upon these last manoeuvres with some flickering returns of intelligence, suddenly drew a black arrow from below his robe, and therewith pinned the paper in its place. The sight of this disrespect, or, as it almost seemed, cruelty to the dead, drew a cry of horror from young Shelton, but the old outlaw only laughed. "'Nay, I will have the credit for mine order,' he hiccuped. "'My jolly boys must have the credit on it. The credit, brother!' And then, shutting his eyes tight and opening his mouth like a precentor, he began to thunder in a formidable voice, "'If ye should drink the clary wine!' "'Peace, sot!' cried Dick, and thrust him hard against the wall. "'In two words, if so be that such a man can understand me who hath more wine than wit in him, in two words—' and a Mary's name begone out of this house where, if ye continue to abide, you will not only hang yourself, but me also. Faith, then, up foot! Be ye or by the mass I may forget that I am in some sort your captain, and in some your debtor. Go! The sham monk was now, in some degree, recovering the use of his intelligence, and the ring in Dick's voice, and the glitter in Dick's eye, stamped home the meaning of his words. "'By the mass!' cried Lawless. "'And I be not wanted, I can go!' And he turned tipsily along the corridor, and proceeded to flounder downstairs, lurching against the wall. So soon as he was out of sight, Dick returned to his hiding-place, resolutely fixed to see the matter out. Wisdom, indeed, moved him to be gone, but love and curiosity were stronger." Time passed slowly for the young man, bolt upright behind the arras. The fire in the room began to die down, and the lamp to burn low and to smoke. And still there was no word of the return of any one to these upper quarters of the house. Still the faint hum and clatter of the supper-party sounded from far below, and still, under the thick fall of the snow, Shoreby Town lay silent upon every side. At length, however, feet and voices began to draw near upon the stair, and presently after several of Sir Daniel's guests arrived upon the landing, and turning down the corridor, beheld the torn heiress and the body of the spy. Some ran forward and some back, and all together began to cry aloud. At the sound of their cries, guests, men-at-arms, ladies, servants, and in a word all the inhabitants of that great house, came flying from every direction, and began to join their voices to the tumult. Soon a way was cleared, and Sir Daniel came forth in person, followed by the bridegroom of the morrow, my lord Shoreby. "'My lord,' said Sir Daniel, "'have I not told you of this knave black arrow? To the proof, behold it! There it stands, and by the rood, my gossip, in a man of yours, or one that stole your colours." "'In good sooth it was a man of mine,' replied Lord Shoreby, hanging back. "'I would I had more such. He was keen as a beagle, and secret as a mole.' "'I gossip, truly?' asked Sir Daniel, keenly. "'And what came he smelling up so many stairs in my poor mansion? But he will smell no more.' "'An it please you, Sir Daniel,' said one, here is a paper written upon with some matter pinned upon his breast. "'Give it me, arrow and all,' said the knight. And when he had taken into his hand the shaft, 
he continued for some time to gaze upon it in a sullen musing. "'Aye,' he said, addressing Lord Shoreby, "'here is a hate that followeth hard and close upon my heels. This black stick, or its just likeness, shall yet bring me down. And, gossip, suffer a plain knight to counsel you, and if these hounds begin to wind you, flee. Tis like a sickness. It still hangeth, hangeth upon the limbs.' but let us see what they have written. Mm, it is as I thought, my lord. Ye are marked, like an old oak, by the woodman. Tomorrow or next day, by will come the axe. But what wrote ye in a letter? Lord Shoreby snatched the paper from the arrow, read it, crumpled it between his hands, and, overcoming the reluctance which had hitherto withheld him from approaching, threw himself on his knees beside the body, and eagerly groped in the wallet. He rose to his feet with a somewhat unsettled countenance. "'Gossip,' he said, "'I have indeed lost a letter here that much imported, and could I lay my hand upon the knave that took it, he should incontinently grace a halter. But let us, first of all, secure the issues of the house. Here is enough harm already by St. George.' Sentinels were posted close around the house and garden, a sentinel on every landing of the stair a whole troop in the main entrance-hall, and yet another about the bonfire in the shed. Sir Daniel's followers were supplemented by Lord Shoreby's. There was thus no lack of men or weapons to make the house secure, or to entrap a lurking enemy, should one be there. Meanwhile, the body of the spy was carried out through the falling snow, and deposited in the abbey church. It was not until these dispositions had been taken and all had returned to a decorous silence, that the two girls drew Richard Shelton from his place of concealment, and made a full report to him of what had passed. He, upon his side, recounted the visit of the spy, his dangerous discovery, and speedy end. Joanna leaned back very faint against the curtained wall. "'It will avail but little,' she said. "'I shall be wed to-morrow, in the morning, after all.' "'What?' cried her friend, and here is our paladin that driveth lions like mice. Ye have little faith of a surety. But come, friend lion-driver, give us some comfort. Speak, and let us hear bold counsels. Dick was confounded to be thus outfaced with his own exaggerated words, but though he coloured, he still spoke stoutly. Truly, said he, we are in straits. Yet could I but win out of this house for half an hour, I do honestly tell myself that all might still go well, and for the marriage it should be prevented. And for the lions, mimicked the girl, they shall be driven. I crave your excuse, said Dick. I speak not now in any boasting humour, but rather as one inquiring after help or counsel, for if I get not forth of this house and through these sentinels, I can do less than naught. Take me, I pray you, rightly. "'Why said ye was a rustic, Joan?' the girl inquired. "'I warrant he hath a tongue in his head. Ready, soft, and bold is his speech at pleasure. What would ye more?' "'Nay,' sighed Joanna, with a smile. "'They have changed me, my friend Dick, tis sure enough. When I beheld him he was rough indeed. But it matters little. There is no help for my hard case, and I must still be Lady Shoreby.' 
Nay, then, said Dick, I will even make the adventure. A friar is not much regarded, and if I found a good fairy to lead me up, I may find another belike to carry me down. How call they the name of the spy? Rudder, said the young lady, and an excellent good name to call him by. But how mean ye, lion-driver, what is in your mind to do? To offer boldly to go forth, returned Dick, and if any stop me, to keep an unchanged countenance, and say I go to pray for Rudder. They will be praying over his poor clay even now. The device is somewhat simple, replied the girl. Yet it may hold. Nay, said young Shelton, it is no device, but mere boldness, which serveth often better in great straits. Ye say true, she said. Well, go a Mary's name, and may heaven speed you. You leave here a poor maid that loves you entirely, and another that is most heartily your friend. Be wary for their sakes, and make not shipwreck of your safety. Ay, added Joanna, go, Dick. You run no more peril, whether you go or stay. Go. You take my heart with you. The saints defend you. Dick passed the first century with so assured a countenance that the fellow merely fidgeted and stared, but at the second landing the man carried his spear across and bade him name his business. "'Pax phobiscum,' answered Dick. "'I go to pray over the body of this poor rutter.' "'Like enough,' returned the sentry. "'But to go alone is not permitted you.' He leaned over the oaken balusters and whistled shrill. "'One cometh!' he cried, and then motioned Dick to pass. At the foot of the stair he found the guard afoot, and awaiting his arrival. And when he had once more repeated his story, the commander of the post ordered four men out to accompany him to the church. "'Let him not slip, my lads,' he said. "'Bring him to Sir Oliver on your lives.' The door was then opened. One of the men took Dick by either arm, another marched ahead with a link, and the fourth, with bent bow and the arrow on the string, brought up the rear." In this order they proceeded through the garden, under the thick darkness of the night and the scattering snow, and drew near to the dimly illuminated windows of the abbey church. At the western portal a picket of archers stood, taking what shelter they could find in the hollow of the arched doorways, and all powdered with the snow, and it was not until Dick's conductors had exchanged a word with these that they were suffered to pass forth and enter the nave of the sacred edifice. The church was doubtfully lighted by the tapers upon the great altar, and by a lamp or two that swung from the arched roof before the private chapels of illustrious families. In the midst of the choir the dead spy lay, his limbs piously composed, upon a bier. A hurried mutter of prayer sounded along the arches, cowled figures knelt in the stalls of the choir, and on the steps of the high altar a priest in pontifical vestments celebrated Mass. Upon this fresh entrance one of the cowled figures arose, and coming down the steps which elevated the level of the choir above that of the nave, demanded from the leader of the four men what business brought him to the church. Out of respect for the service and the dead, they spoke in guarded tones, but the echoes of that huge empty building caught up their words— and hollowly repeated and repeated them along the aisles. "'A monk!' returned Sir Oliver, 
for he it was, when he had heard the report of the archer, "'My brother, I look not for your coming,' he added, turning to the young Shelton. "'In all civility, who are ye? And at whose instance do ye join your supplications to ours?' Dick, keeping his cowl about his face, signed to Sir Oliver to move a pace or two aside from the archers, and, so soon as the priest had done so, "'I cannot hope to deceive you, sir,' he said. "'My life is in your hands.' Sir Oliver violently started. His stout cheeks grew pale, and for a space he was silent. "'Richard,' he said, "'what brings you here, I know not, but I much misdoubt it to be evil. Nevertheless, for the kindness that was, I would not willingly deliver you to harm. Ye shall sit all night beside me in the stalls. Ye shall sit there till my lord of Shoreby be married, and the party gone safe home.' And if all goeth well, and ye have planned no evil, in the end ye should go whither ye will. But if your purpose be bloody, it shall return upon your head. Amen. And the priest devoutly crossed himself, and turned and louded to the altar. With that he spoke a few words more to the soldiers, and, taking Dick by the hand, led him up to the choir, and placed him in the stall beside his own, where, for mere decency, the lad had instantly to kneel and appear to be busy with his devotions. His mind and his eyes, however, were continually wandering. Three of the soldiers, he observed, instead of returning to the house, had got them quietly into a point of vantage in the aisle, and he could not doubt that they had done so by Sir Oliver's command. Here, then, he was trapped. Here he must spend the night in the ghostly glimmer and shadow of the church, and looking on the pale face of him he slew, and here in the morning he must see his sweetheart married to another man before his eyes. But, for all that, he obtained a command upon his mind, and built himself up in patience to await the issue. End of chapter Book Four, Chapter Four of The Black Arrow this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. Book Four, Chapter Four. In the Abbey Church. In Shoreby Abbey Church, the prayers were kept up all night without cessation now with the singing of psalms, now with a note or two upon the bell. Rudder, the spy, was nobly waked. There he lay, meanwhile, as they had arranged him, his dead hands crossed upon his bosom, his dead eyes staring on the roof, and hard by, in the stall, the lad who had slain him waited, in sore disquietude, the coming of the morning. Once only in the course of the hours Sir Oliver leaned across to his captive. Richard! he whispered, "'My son, if you mean me evil, I will certify all my soul's welfare. Ye design upon an innocent man. Sinful in the eye of heaven I do declare myself, but sinful as against you I am not, neither have been ever.' "'My father,' returned Dick, in the same tone of voice, "'trust me, I design nothing. But as for your innocence, I may not forget that ye you cleared yourself but lamely.' 
"'A man may be innocently guilty,' replied the priest. "'He may be set blindfolded upon a mission, ignorant of its true scope. So it was with me. I did decoy your father to his death, but as heaven sees us in this sacred place, I knew not what I did.' "'It may be,' returned Dick. "'But see what a strange web ye have woven, that I should be, at this hour.' at once your prisoner and your judge that ye should both threaten my days and deprecate my anger methinks if ye had been at all your life a true man and good priest you would neither thus fear nor thus detest me and now to your prayers i do obey you since needs must but i will not be burthened with your company the priest uttered a sigh so heavy that it had almost touched the lad into some sentiment of pity, and he bowed his head upon his hands like a man borne down below a weight of care. He joined no longer in the psalms, but Dick could hear the beads rattle through his fingers, and the prayers a-pattering between his teeth. Yet a little, and the grey of the morning began to struggle through the painted casements of the church, and to put to shame the glimmer of the tapers. The light slowly broadened and brightened, and presently through the southeastern clear stories a flush of rosy sunlight flickered on the walls the storm was over the great clouds had disburdened their snow and fled farther on and the new day was breaking on a merry winter landscape sheathed in white a bustle of church officers followed the beer was carried forth to the dead house and the stains of blood were cleansed from off the tiles that no such ill-omened spectacle should disgrace the marriage of Lord Shoreby. At the same time, the very ecclesiastics who had been so dismally engaged all night began to put on mourning faces, to do honour to the merrier ceremony which was about to follow. And further to announce the coming of the day, the pious of the town began to assemble and fall to prayer before their favourite shrines, or wait their turn at the confessionals favoured by this stir, it was, of course, easily possible for any man to avoid the vigilance of Sir Daniel's sentries at the door, and presently Dick, looking about him wearily, caught the eye of no less a person than Will Lawless, still in his monk's habit. The outlaw, at the same moment, recognised his leader, and privily signed to him with hand and eye. Now, Dick was far from having forgiven the old rogue his most untimely drunkenness, but he had no desire to involve him in his own predicament, and he signalled back to him, as plain as he was able, to be gone. Lawless, as though he had understood, disappeared at once behind a pillar, and Dick breathed again. What, then, was his dismay to feel himself plucked by the sleeve, and to find the old robber installed beside him, upon the next seat, and, to all appearance, plunged in his devotions. Instantly Sir Oliver arose from his place, and, gliding behind the stalls, made for the soldiers in the aisle. If the priest's suspicions had been so lightly wakened, the harm was already done, and Lawless a prisoner in the church. "'Move not,' whispered Dick. "'We are in the plagueous pass, thanks, before all things, to thy swinishness of yester-even.' When you saw me here, so strangely seated where I have neither right nor interest, what a mirroring I could you not smell harm, and get you gone from evil!' "'Nay,' returned Lawless, 
I thought she had heard from Ellis, and was here on duty. Ellis, echoed Dick, is Ellis then returned? For sure, replied the outlaw. He came last night, and belted me sore for being in wine. So there you are avenged, my master. A furious man is Ellis Duckworth. He hath ridden me hotspur from Craven to prevent this marriage. And Master Dick, you know the way of him, do so he will. Nay, then, returned Dick with composure, you and I, my poor brother, are dead men, for I sit here a prisoner upon suspicion, and my neck was to answer for this very marriage that he proposeth to mar. I had a fair choice, by the rude, to lose my sweetheart or else lose my life. Well, the cast is thrown. It is to be my life. By the mass, cried Lawless, half arising, I am gone. But Dick had his hand at once upon his shoulder. Friend Lawless, sit ye still, he said. And ye have eyes, look yonder at the corner by the chancel arch. See ye not that, even upon the motion of your rising, yon armed men are up and ready to intercept you? Yield ye, friend. You were bold aboard ship, when ye thought to die a sea death. Be bold again, now that ye are to die presently upon the gallows. Master Dick, gasped Lawless, the thing hath come upon me somewhat of the suddenest. But give me a moment till I fetch my breath again, and by the mass I will be as stout-hearted as yourself. Here is my bold fellow, returned Dick, and yet, Lawless, it goes hard against the grain with me to die. But where whining mendeth nothing, wherefore whine? Nay, that indeed, chimed Lawless, and a fig for death at worst. It has to be done, my master, soon or late, and hanging in a good quarrel is an easy death, they say, though I could never hear of any that came back to say so. And so saying, the stout old rascal leaned back in his stall, folded his arms, and began to look about him with the greatest air of insolence and unconcern. And for the matter of that, Dick added, it is yet our best chance to keep quiet. We wot not yet what Duckworth purposes, and when all is said, and if the worst befall, we may yet clear our feet of it. Now that they ceased talking, they were aware of a very distant and thin strain of mirthful music which steadily drew nearer, louder, and merrier. The bells in the tower began to break forth into a doubling peal, and a greater and greater concourse of people to crowd into the church shuffling the snow from off their feet, and clapping and blowing in their hands. The western door was flung wide open, showing a glimpse of sunlit, snowy street, and admitting in a great gust the shrewd air of the morning, and in short, it became plain by every sign that Lord Shoreby desired to be married very early in the day, and that the wedding train was drawing near. Some of Lord Shoreby's men now cleared a passage down the middle aisle forcing the people back with lance-stocks, and just then, outside the portal, the secular musicians could be descried drawing near over the frozen snow, the fifers and trumpeters scarlet in the face with lusty blowing, the drummers and the cymbalists beating as for a wager. These, as they drew near the door of the sacred building, filed off on either side, and, marking time to their own vigorous music, stood stamping in the snow. As they thus opened their ranks, the leaders of this noble bridal train appeared behind and between them, 
and such was the variety and gaiety of their attire, such the display of silks and velvet, fur and satin, embroidery and lace, that the procession showed forth upon the snow like a flower-bed in a path, or a painted window in a wall. First came the bride, a sorry sight, as pale as winter, clinging to Sir Daniel's arm, and attended, as bridesmaid, by the short young lady who had befriended Dick the night before. Close behind, in the most radiant toilet, followed the bridegroom, halting on a gouty foot, and as he passed the threshold of the sacred building and doffed his hat, his bald head was seen to be rosy with emotion. And now came the hour of Ellis Duckworth. Dick, who sat stunned among contrary emotions, grasping the desk in front of him, beheld a movement in the crowd, people jostling backward, and eyes and arms uplifted. Following these signs, he beheld three or four men with bent bows, leaning from the clear-story gallery. At the same instant they delivered their discharge, and before the clamour and cries of the astounded populace had time to swell fully upon the ear, they had flitted from their perch and disappeared. The nave was full of swaying heads and voices screaming, the ecclesiastics thronged in terror from their places, the music ceased, and though the bells overhead continued for some seconds to clang upon the air, some wind of the disaster seemed to find its way at last, even to the chamber where the ringers were leaping on their ropes, and they also desisted from their merry labours. Right in the midst of the nave the bridegroom lay stone dead, pierced by two black arrows. The bride had fainted. Sir Daniel stood, towering above the crowd in his surprise and anger, a cloth-yard shaft quivering in his left forearm, and his face streaming blood from another which had grazed his brow. Long before any search could be made for them, the authors of this tragic interruption had clattered down a turnpike stair, but Dick and Lawless still remained in pawn. They had indeed arisen on the first alarm, and pushed manfully to gain the door. But what with the narrowness of the stalls, and the crowding of terrified priests and choristers, the attempt had been in vain, and they had stoically resumed their places. And now, pale with horror, Sir Oliver rose to his feet and called upon Sir Daniel, pointing with one hand to Dick. "'Here!' he cried. "'Is Richard Shelton! Alas, the hour! Blood guilty! Seize him! Bid him be seized! For all our lives' sake, take him and bind him surely! He hath sworn our fall!' Sir Daniel was blinded by anger, blinded by the hot blood that still streamed across his face. "'Where?' he bellowed. "'Hail him forth! By the cross of Holywood, but he shall rue this hour!' The crowd fell back, and a party of archers invaded the choir, laid rough hands on Dick, dragged him head foremost from the stall, and thrust him by his shoulders down the chancel steps. Lawless, on his part, sat as still as a mouse. Sir Daniel, brushing the blood out of his eyes, stared blinkingly upon his captive. "'Aye,' he said, "'treacherous and insolent, I have thee fast, and by all potent oaths, for every drop of blood that now trickles in mine eyes, I will wring a groan out of thy carcass. Away with him!' he added. "'Here is no place. Off with him to my house. I will number every joint of thy body with a torture.' 
but Dick, putting off his captors, uplifted his voice. "'Sanctuary!' he shouted. "'Sanctuary! Ho there, my fathers! They would drag me from the church!' "'From the church thou hast defiled with murder, boy,' added a tall man, magnificently dressed. "'On what probation?' cried Dick. "'They do accuse me, indeed, of some complicity, but have not proved one tittle. I was, in truth, a suitor for this damsel's hand, and she, I will be bold to say it, repaid my suit with favour. But what then? To love a maid is no offence, I trow, nay, nor to gain her love.' In all else I stand here free from guiltiness. There was a murmur of approval among the bystanders, so boldly Dick declared his innocence, but at the same time a throng of accusers arose upon the other side, crying how he had been found last night in Sir Daniel's house, how he wore a sacrilegious disguise. And in the midst of the babble, Sir Oliver indicated Lawless, both by voice and gesture, as accomplice to the fact. He, in his turn, was dragged from his seat and set beside his leader. The feelings of the crowd rose high on either side, and while some dragged the prisoners to and fro to favour their escape, others cursed and struck them with their fists. Dick's ears rang and his brain swam dizzily like a man struggling in the eddies of a furious river. But the tall man, who had already answered Dick by a prodigious exercise of voice, restored silence and order in the mob. "'Search them,' he said, "'for arms. We may so judge of their intentions.' Upon Dick they found no weapon but his poniard, and this told in his favour, until one man officiously drew it from its sheath, and found it still uncleansed of the blood of Rutter. At this there was a great shout among Sir Daniel's followers, which the tall man suppressed by a gesture and an imperious glance. But when it came to the turn of Lawless, there was found under his gown a sheaf of arrows identical with those that had been shot. "'How say ye now?' asked the tall man, frowningly, of Dick. "'Sir,' replied Dick, "'I am here in sanctuary. Is it not so? Well, sir, I see by your bearing that ye are high in station, and I read in your countenance the marks of piety and justice.' To you, then, I will yield me prisoner, and that blithely, foregoing the advantage of this holy place, but rather than to be yielded into the discretion of that man, whom I do here accuse with a loud voice to be the murderer of my natural father and the unjust retainer of my lands and revenues, rather than that, I would beseech you, under favour, with your own gentle hand, to dispatch me on the spot." Your own ears have heard him, how before that I was proven guilty he did threaten me with torments. It standeth not with your own honour to deliver me to my sworn enemy, an old oppressor, but to try me fairly by the way of law, and, if that I be guilty indeed, to slay me mercifully. "'My lord,' cried Sir Daniel, "'will ye not hearken to this wolf? His bloody dagger reeks him the lie into his face.' "'Nay, but suffer me, good knight,' returned the tall stranger. "'Your own vehemence doth somewhat tell against yourself.' And here the bride, who had come to herself some minutes past, and looked wildly on upon the scene, broke loose from those that held her, and fell upon her knees before the last speaker. "'My lord of Risingham,' she cried, 
hear me in justice i am here in this man's custody by mere force reft from mine own people since that day i have never pity countenance nor comfort from the face of man but from him only richard shelton whom they now accuse and labour to undo my lord if he was yesternight in sir daniel's mansion it was i that brought him there he came but at my prayer and thought to do no hurt while yet sir daniel was a good lord to him he fought with them of the black arrow loyally but when his foul guardian sought his life by practices and he fled by night for his soul's sake out of that bloody house whither was he to turn he helpless and penniless or if he be fallen among ill company whom should you blame the lad that was unjustly handled or the guardian that did abuse his trust and then the short young lady fell on her knees by joanna's side and i my good lord and natural uncle she added i can bear testimony on my conscience and before the face of all that what this maid saith is true it was i unworthy that did lead the young man in earl risingham had heard in silence and when the voices ceased he still stood silent for a space then he gave joanna his hand to arise though it was to be observed that he did not offer the like courtesy to her who had called herself his niece sir daniel he said here is a right intricate affair the which with your good leave it shall be mine to examine and adjust content ye then your business is in careful hands justice shall be done you and in the meanwhile get ye incontinently home and have your hurts attended the air is shrewd and i would not ye took cold upon these scratches he made a sign with his hand it was passed down the nave by obsequious servants who waited there upon his smallest gesture instantly without the church a tucket sounded shrill and through the open portal archers and men-at-arms uniformly arrayed in the colours and wearing the badge of lord risingham began to file into the church took dick and lawless from those who still detained them and closing their files about the prisoners marched forth again and disappeared as they were passing joanna held both her hands to dick and cried him her farewell and the bridesmaid nothing downcast by her uncle's evident displeasure blew him a kiss with a keep your heart up lion driver that for the first time since the accident called up a smile to the faces of the crowd end of chapter everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.